Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. But welcome, those of you uh, on the Zoom and those of you in the room. Thanks for showing up on a Wednesday. Would you mind, um, Esteban, pulling that window open? Probably just that one should be fine. You can pull that one open a little bit if you want, Ho. Nope, it's up and then, I know, it's okay. It's, it's, counter, it's a counterintuitive window. The counterintuitive window versus the intuitive window that just knows when to open. All right, so yeah, I'm Jason. And uh, this is Against the Stream. Glad you guys are here. Uh, anyone here for the first time? Welcome. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming he dragged you here. Hopefully not kicking and screaming. What about in the room, uh, in the Zoom? Is there anyone uh, new to this group? All right, Stacy, welcome. What's your name? Taylor. Taylor, welcome, Taylor. Sonia, welcome. Anyone else? All right. Mostly it's usual suspects. We're going to uh, do a little kind of a little intro for a minute or two. So I'm going to actually break you guys out in um, some groups, those of you in the Zoom. And then those of you in the room, just turn towards someone and just do, you know, a little, hey, how you doing? Uh, maybe what brought you here, what brings you here today, an insight you've had, something like that. All right. Hello. All right, here you go. You guys are going to do the same thing. I don't think that worked. <laughs> I don't think that worked. Huh? We were all in one room. <laughs> yeah. Oops. I guess I could have just left you all in one room huh, and let you guys check in. Sorry for doing that. I figured I'd screwed something up. My bad. One of these days, I will actually figure that out. But not today. All right. 
So uh, thank your partner. And um, apologize to those of you for not actually breaking you out and just putting you all in a room together to fight it out. All right, so we're going to meditate because that's what we tend to do here out against the stream is literally go against the stream that's out there. Um, you know, this is actually a teaching from the Buddha, the, the title or the name of our meditation center, this idea of going against our conditioned mental habits going against the status quo, going against the kind of go with the flow, stay delusional um, and or uh, anesthetized. And um, that going against is also part of, uh, I think the reason why we resonate with it, part of the kind of punk uh, ethos that Noah and I, I grew up with. And this just idea of, um, actually just challenging, you know, what we think and what is maybe kind of accepted reality. Um, is that the real reality? It reminds me of that. Uh, it's really old now, the matrix of like the red pill or the blue pill. Which one will you take? Do you want to stay kind of stuck in the rat race of greed, hatred, and delusion or expand us something real, which may not look as pretty at first? but then that's where freedom is found. And I'm gonna expand on that a little bit today as I talk about the initial teaching of the Buddha, the first teaching of the Buddha um, being the Four Noble Truths. Uh, so we'll, we'll look at some of that today and lay some groundwork. But first, yeah, let's meditate. So finding a posture that's workable, that's sustainable. If you wanna sit on the ground, you can. If you wanna pull a cushion off the off the uh, rack, you can, if you want to um, just lay down, you can, you can do kind of whatever you want besides like fall asleep or leave. You can leave actually, if you want to, but it, you know, we request that you stay at least for a little while, give it a, give it a, a good try. And um, so we're gonna, yeah, we'll sit for 30 minutes. So resting in a posture that's workable, that's sustainable, where you could feel relaxed and alert. It's a good idea to, you know, make any subtle adjustments with your body that you feel like you need to in the beginning. Finding that posture that'll be sustainable. And in some way arriving here, this breath, this sitting, breathing body. opening to the comings and goings of sound. 
Sounds outside the room. Sounds inside the room. Checking in with this body. What are the different sensations that are present here? Checking in with the breath. What's this breath like? Does it feel long or short? Is it coarse or fine? What's happening in the mind? Just doing a bit of a mental check-in. And then when you're ready, if you're ready, the invitation today is to actually utilize sound as the primary meditation object. So the arising and passing of sounds, sounds outside the room, sounds inside the room. Of course, the breath is in the background, the sensations of the body in the background. But allowing sound and the arising and passing of sound to be the place of attention. Sound of my voice. Perhaps even the absence of sound.
seeing if it's possible to just be here in this body with this breath and receiving sound versus going out looking for it. Of course, the mind may come up with stories. It's not a problem. It's just what the mind does. Think, plan, remember, label, identify. Whenever you recognize the attention has wandered off the primary object of sound, just acknowledging where it's gone. And then in some way, just inviting the attention back perhaps connecting with the body and the breath, and then opening back to sound. Perhaps noting, does the mind label the different sounds? Does it name it, identify it? If so, can we let that go? 
just receive sound as sound without the label or the identification. just like the breath. Sound is constantly changing, constantly moving, even in the absence of sound or gross sounds, there are subtle sounds.
the ear hears. Again and again, just recognizing if the attention wanders off, there's some story, perhaps gets bored, distracted with a sense of friendliness or kindness with the mind, just aiming the attention back. Again, feeling the body sitting, grounded here, the breath rising, falling, and then rest the attention back onto the sound, coming and going spaces in between. Without labels. Without the need to identify.
perhaps opening to the feeling tones, the subtle experience of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It may happen with each sound or particular sounds. So open up, drop below the discursive mind, the thinking mind, into the feeling and perceiving body. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral.
thoughts, sounds, sensations of the body, all part of meditation, part of mindfulness. Nothing is left out. Is sound a problem? When it's pleasant? When it's unpleasant? Or when it's neutral? What can be known here? For the next few moments, feel free to stick with sound or explore one of the other meditation objects, breath, or sweeping or scanning through the body, awareness of the body sitting. the rise and fall of the breath. But if sound is working for you, stay with that.
That was a sound exploration. I just kind of feel like we give a little too much emphasis to the breath all the time. And I think a few weeks ago, I was talking about like my nose and how I had an obstructed nasal passage. And then I, I was on this long retreat and then I couldn't breathe out of my nose. And all of a sudden I thought I could never meditate again. And then I switched to sound, which was something that was just kind of in the background prior. Um, and I was, so I was describing that experience and I thought, yeah, let's do something different today. I always kind of, you know, focus on the same thing. Not really, but it might feel that way. So what was that like? I would open up for just reflections. Was that helpful? Was it new? Was it challenging? Was it hard? Those in the room or in the Zoom? Anyone wants to give a little reflection at all? Or any question about meditation or the meditation practice? Yeah, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Um, I really enjoyed that. There was a, a lot of sounds going on in my house that uh, sometimes when I'm meditating, they're kind of a distraction. But um, this time, paying more attention to them in a positive way was nice. You know, the sound of the air conditioner was real relaxing um, when it kicked on and just certain things, identifying what the sounds were. Um, it was, yeah, it was nice, very relaxing, but it also kept me pretty attentive and not uh, dozing off, you know, mm -hmm. so I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Tori. Hey, it's actually me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I thank you for the meditation and I, I just wanted to reflect on um basically like i it was very hard for me to pay attention um but i thought it was kind of ironic uh that i just listened to the ajahn Sumedho talk for the day like right before this and so my brain just constantly kept like chewing on nuggets from that and mm -hmm. uh it was i just guess i guess it was kind of funny that like i was focused on like the knowledge of mindfulness more than like i could stay present like i was being distracted by talks about not being distracted basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right um but yeah. The noises did actually help to bring me back, which usually they, it does the opposite. So that was very interesting. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, thank you. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Anyone in the room? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I 
Yeah, so they just, once you open to it, uh, instead of making it a problem, they just kind of fade, right? Like that, is that what? Uh-huh. Right. Right, well, I mean, it happens, but sure. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, great. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Okay, Mike. Thanks, Jason. Uh, meditation, like you'd said about the breath, like I, I tend to to cling to it a little bit. In the past, you've like brought up done done something similar where you've said like try to like open up the sound and. And when you did it in the past, I used to be kind of like resistant to it. Like I would just be like, no, I'm going to stick with the breath, you know, in my mind. And tonight I was more receptive to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I like when you said, don't try to just like let the sound start and end and try not to name it. I found that to be a benefit. And then I remembered something that I had read in a book about like the nada sound. Um, and I, I, I like, like got into the ringing of the nada sound and like kind of like that made me stay in the present moment or stay like in mindfulness of the here and the now. So mm-hmm. I, I found it, uh, to be a, a good meditation and the, uh, I opened by, I, I was more receptive and not like, so like clinging to to the breath so i found it to be good thank you cool yeah so mike brings up a point which is basically kind of where i first thought about this um besides one of one of my teachers ajahn Samedo, uh who the, you know there's noah's doing a class right now on a bunch of 108 auto Samedo uh, ajahn Samedo talks and um, so he has a, a book called Sound of Silence. Um, it's not a very big book. It's just kind of a little book. And uh, he talks about even in silence, complete silence, like a sound deprivation tank or whatever those things are, those deprivation tanks, that there is still a sound and it's an inner sound. Um, and which is called in Pali, it's called uh, nada, which is an interesting because in Spanish, what's that's like not that's like nothing, right? Like it's an, what's a nada, what's a nada? It's like no problem or something like that, right? Denada. Oh, that's denada, right? Yeah, totally different. So, uh, anyway, but the the nada sound is this kind of. And, it, and what people have asked me, is that, does that mean like tinnitus? No, it's not. It's actually not. It's, it's the, uh, what Samedo describes as the sound of silence. 
And the idea is to explore it for yourself. And it's kind of like when you, when you can drop down beyond the chatter of the mind, what's left. When you can drop down beyond all of the kind of distractive, you know, kind of problem making of sound or chasing pleasurable sound, what's left. And that's what I think is being pointed to um, in, in the teaching. So, yeah. Any last uh, thoughts, reflections before we move on? Does anybody hate it? You're like, this fucking meditation. That damn sound. You did. You hated it. Too much space, huh? Uh-huh. Yeah. The thing about the breath, right, is, oh, I, like, I, and some people, you know, everyone has a problem with something, you know what I mean, right? Especially when it comes to meditation. Nothing like figuring out how critical, how judgmental, how um, distracted, how out of fucking control your mind is. Just try to sit and watch your breath, you know, or sit and listen to just, just allow sound to arise and pass away. You know, there, what it will reveal, the stark reality of your everyday mind that we're usually so busy, we're just not noticing. You know, uh, that's what I love about meditation. It's also what I have hated about meditation at times. Like, oh my God, did my mind really just come up with that? The good thing is that after several years of practice, not all the time, there used to be like a green light and a green light. Like I would think and say, and then I developed a uh, yellow light. So I would think, and then I would think probably not good, too bad. I'm saying it anyway. So there was no kind of, and now there's like a stop sign. So like, I'll stop. Sometimes I'll be like, okay, that's not good. I won't say it. And sometimes I can't help it. It's just, I just go. Sometimes that California roll right through that fucker. But having a little bit more discernment of what's going on in my mind, my judgments, my um, commentary, and how it affects me. Before even how it affects other people, that's what's so great about meditation is this is all going on and it's going on sometimes even while we're sleeping, like all throughout the day. This is why sometimes people talk about, uh, I have a really hard time getting to sleep. I've been distracting myself with all kinds of busy shit I've been doing all day long or pleasurable stuff or, you know, and then I lay down to go to sleep and my mind just tries to catch up. <laughs> Does anyone else experience that? Right. So this um, learning to shift attention um, away from the mind and towards either the breath or sound or the body <clears throat> can be really helpful. It's, it's not a distraction, actually, um, but it's a way to de-emphasize the thinking mind, you know. There, when I, I was at uh, Wat Pananachat, which is a the Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah is the Thai meditation master in northern Thailand who has been dead for many years, but this is our lineage, the Thai forest lineage. And so I was at uh, the, his Western monastery, in other words, his monastery for Western or English speaking people. 
And I was walking down this, uh, you know, forested path in this monastery in Northeast Thailand, all, you know, with cicadas and, you know, uh, iguanas and all kinds of shit going on. Right. And I'm like all meditative. And um, there's this sign and he, what the, what he would do and what others would do is post signs of Ajahn's teachings um, on trees, just randomly around the property. And uh, there was this sign and it said, uh, is sound bothering you or are you bothering sound? Cha. And I was like, what is that? I don't bother sound. And then at some point later on, and you know, I was meditating and I was in my, well, my little hut. And, you know, when I first got there the first night or the second night, I was like, oh, the cicadas, oh, they're so rhythmic and they're so beautiful. And then like by the fifth night, I was like, those fucking cicadas won't shut up. They're like, Meh, like all night long. It's like, it, it, it changed. But what changed? Not the cicadas, my perception of the cicadas, you know, and then a couple of days later, it went back to they were that like you were saying, they just kind of faded into the background, kind of like the way traffic does maybe sometimes. You know, sometimes traffic can be really, you know, people talk about it here all the time. Oh, that, that traffic, oh, I'd be able to meditate if it wasn't for that Harley starting up, you know. And then at some and then there's other days where it's like, oh, like I didn't even notice. So that is what I, my interpretation of what uh, Ajahn Chah's sign meant, you know? Are you bothering sound, or sound bothering you, or are you bothering sound? So what I wanted to talk about, and kind of leading into, I mean, it's all related, right? The first official teaching of Siddhartha Gautama after he became the Buddha is um, the teaching that he gave called setting the wheel of the Dharma in motion. And uh, he gave it to his homies. So he was kind of close to getting um, enlightened, right? He was like pretty close. He was having some, some deep meditative yogic experiences, right? And he was like down to, you know, like they, they were into this like extreme, like uh, mortification and uh, kind of a masochistic uh, uh, trying to de-emphasize the body was what they were going for. Like the, I'm not this body. And they would, um, you know, so they would like eat, like, you know, like the way you still see kind of hin like Hindi kind of yogis kind of do like in India, definitely this was big in like the late 80s and early 90s, where they would like do this mortification of like doing really crazy yogic postures or fitting themselves into boxes or not eating for periods of time or, you know, um, just doing these things that were all about kind of pushing their, their limits. Yoga is still very much that way, I think, even in, in the, the gym yoga mentality about pushing your limits, which can be useful. But to the extreme, there was, uh, um, for the, from the Buddhist time, there was, it was not reach, he was not reaching the goal. So he decided to break off from the practice 
And he didn't, he wasn't like, you guys are wrong. He was just like, I'm going to go over here and do this. And the thing that he decided to do was to eat once a day, like a rice gruel once a day before noon and uh, to allow himself to sleep for, you know, like three hours a day or a night and, um, and to, to meditate, not uh, to meditate regularly, you know, all basically all the other time he was meditating and that to his homies sounded like indulgence. They were like, you are indulging in food. You're allowing yourself to sleep. So they kind of were like, you're a sellout, beat it. And they kind of kicked him out of the crew. And he was like, cool, I'm on my own. So he went off on his own. And he had started to gain, you know, the other part of this is that um, he was extremely emaciated um, to such a degree that uh, like the, he, you could see his throat, the back of his throat. Um, you could see his ribs and the, actually his spine. So he had been doing this for a while and he was like, yeah, this isn't the way, like I'm going to die. His skin was gray, you know? Um, so he started to nourish his body. He was like, yeah, this isn't the way. And then this is where he began to kind of discover what, what he then called the middle path, right? The middle path is the middle way between extreme mortification and extreme indulgence, right? And so the middle, the, the middle path was as a mindful path, being mindful, mindful consumption, uh, mindfulness of, you know, all of the precepts, you know, the non-harming, being wise and careful with speech, being wise and careful with sexuality, um, being, you know, not indulging in substances which cloud the mind. So stay kind of in the zone for meditation because he couldn't really concentrate his mind when he was only eating, you know, as it's described, one, gr one grain of rice a day. Right. And, or like a thimble of water. Like this is what was allowed um, in his little, his little group. So he bailed them and he started to kind of feel a little bit healthier and they started to gain some mental clarity. And then he sat in what's called the battle of Mara, which is, uh, you know, the evening leading up to his um, enlightenment. So the battle of Mara is something that we all face every time we meditate. Sometimes when we're not even meditating, right? Right before we go to sleep. Mara in, this, is, this, is actually, this isn't actually a depiction of Mara, um, that one. It's, but it's similar, like this wrathful kind of deity is what Mara is often depicted as. Uh, sometimes called the Lord of Death or the... the um, the Lord of the ego. From a psychological perspective, Mara is the personification of greed, hatred, delusion, or which I just spent much of weeks talking about, right? Which is craving, ill will, uh, laziness or sluggishness of mind, um, restlessness, agitation, and doubt. That these are the things that plague our mind that really cause a lot of our suffering. 
and of course our relationship to those things, whether we cling to them, whether we push them away. So the battle with Mara is basically the, the Buddha had gained some, you know, some strength. He had gotten some rest. And then he was like, all right, I'm going to do this. It's like uh, liberation or death, right? That was kind of his, his vibe. So we sat down. And then after some time, he was plagued with these um, desires, you know, fantasies, you know, kind of sexual fantasies and all of these amazing foods like pomegranates and stuff that he like, what, you know, he's like having one cup of rice gruel a day. And, uh, and so he got, you know, all of this, all of these kind of fantasies and stuff. And then he was able through wisdom, he was able to see none of this lasts. Beauty doesn't last. Pleasurable sex doesn't last, right? Um, drugs don't last. It all fades away. Uh, we, we, we get old, we get sick, we die. This is part of the process. Clinging to pleasurable experiences or fantasy uh, is just leading to a dead end road. So he's able to see that. And Mara was like, ah, oh, fuck. You know, and in the, the some of the story, it's like the pomegranate in his mind. He started to see the pomegranate like dwindling and like and then rotting and then turning to dust. And then there was these uh, Mara, the personification of his ego was um, or greed, hatred and delusion. What were they uh, had the daughter, the daughters of Mara, which were like these attractive kind of dancing, holding plates of you know, food, right? Uh, and start to, you know, see in, in his mind uh, them aging, them becoming less, you know, physically beautiful or desirable. And then uh, ultimately, you know, turn, you know, turning old, decrepit, dying, corpse, dust, right? And then that was a liberating moment. Oh, this, you know, clinging to fantasy is, it's, it's never going to last. The idea of perfection is impossible to achieve. So then Mara was pissed. So then what did Mara do? Sent like wrath, you know, all of these kind of, all the, the, the they're called the demons of Mara. And the demons of Mara are, I mean, they're depicted as like the arrows and spears of greed, of hatred and ill will and resentment and fear and um, spite and all of the envy, all of these kind of um, mental states that we get into, right? Spears and daggers and arrows. And uh, what the Buddha in his, you know, clarity started to see that, you know, that just feeds, it's just feeds as it's not gonna get into his goal. And it just feeds, you know, like hatred with hatred, right? So he de developed compassion. So he was like, you know, I see, I see the suffering in ill will. I see the suffering in resentment. I see the suffering in anger. And then the way that the story goes is that all the spears and the arrows and the daggers turned to lotus blossoms and fell at his feet, right? That's the way the depiction goes. 
So Mara was like, damn, that didn't work either. I was hoping I'd get him, you know, to get up and fight, right? But he didn't. So then Mara says, what gives you the right? Why do you think you're so special? You can't meditate. You don't deserve to be enlightened. You're just, you're just some guy. You're just some spoiled kid from the valley. Like, you know, like this kind of doubt, right? And so what happened is it kind of shook the Buddha, actually, because he was like, started to question what, like, why is this? Why, yeah, why am I, you know, why should, why do I think that I, I deserve to be enlightened, you know, to awaken to the truth? And this is one of my favorite parts of, of this particular story, because it's the Thai version, which brings in the sacred feminine. So in the Thai version, um, Earth, Earth Mother, the water goddess, rises up with, his, with her hair, long hair filled with all of the water of, of every time. It's a tradition in, in Thai Buddhism specifically, but in Buddhism to, um, for monks and nuns to offer a little bit, you know, like, like for the homies, like port for the homies, they offer a little bit of water to the earth before they drink. Uh, they offer a little bit of food to the animals of, of the earth before they eat. It's like a, you know, it's an offering. It's a, it's an act of generosity. So the, in the depiction, the, the earth goddess um, rises up and takes all of the water that, that the Buddha had, um, you know, given to the earth and pulls it out of her hair and washes Mara away. And uh, basically saying like, you know, you deserve this. That guy's a liar. You know, fear is a liar. So, and, and then this is in this moment, he becomes, you know, like, allows himself to accept the fact that he has, you know, realized uh, what people call perfection or realized uh, the nature of things. Okay. That was a long story to, cause I kind of like the story. It's kind of a fun story. So then he reaches his goal and you know what happens is that the Buddha was basically like kind of blissed out for like seven days. After he, you know, all it's like kind of it's like it's like it kind of clicked. And he just sat for seven days in a blissful, awakened state, receiving all of the kind of knowledge and wisdom of the Dharma, right? The truth in nature. Uh, I got a little distracted. But so what happened is that then eventually he was like, okay, how am I going to tell people about this? He's like, people aren't going to get it. This is going against the stream. This is, this is hard. This was difficult. I almost died. Right. He was, he was, he said, um, instructed worldlings have too much dust in their eyes. They're too delusional. They can't see. 
They can't see clearly. They won't awaken to the Dharma. Okay. And then he remembers his homies. And he was like, well, they were close. So maybe they'll get it. If they'll listen to me, they'll, they'll get it. So this is a teaching from the Buddha in the Four Noble Truths. The Buddha said, so this is kind of like um, after he's went to his friends and he's talking about what the Four Noble Truths are. And I discovered that profound truth, so difficult to perceive, difficult to understand, tranquilizing and sublime, which is not to be gained by mere reasoning and is visible only to the wise. The world, however, uh, is given to pleasure, delighted with pleasure, enchanted with pleasure. Truly, such beings will hardly understand the law of conditionality, the, the dependent origination of everything. Yet there are beings whose eyes are only a little covered with dust, and they will understand the truth. So this is his inspiration, he's like, okay, my homies, they can get it. They're pretty close, you know? So he went and he gave, you know, he walked. He walked for three days, actually. He walked for three days. And uh, the way the story goes, he asked his first Dharma talk was he was walking to his homies and he recognized that there was, or there were some travelers on the road and they saw him and he was kind of glowing or he was like, you know, like looked angelic in some way. You know, oftentimes the Buddha is depicted as kind of like having this kind of aura around him. Um, if you think about someone who has purified their mind, I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of monks or nuns, especially people or people who have um, really done a lot of inner work, self, self-realization. But there's something about their energy that kind of shifts. Uh, and I've seen this in monks and nuns that I've um, sat with and practiced with. And um, it's pretty noticeable. And so imagine, so that's like, you know, a, maybe a sliver of what the Buddha had experienced. And so this kind of glowy aura, whatever, dude was kind of on the bliss, right? And then he's walking and these guys are like, these guys, see these three travelers see him and they're like, what's up with this guy? You know? And they said, and they stopped him and they said, are you an angel? Like, are you a deva? And he was like, he was like, no. He was like, are you a God? Cause you know, Hinduism at the time and in the time of India and still to this day, many gods and, and um, sub they're like deities, right? Kind of, uh, personifications similar to kind of Greek mythology, which is strange. It's a strange and similar time frame too, actually. Uh, so, but this idea of like uh, manifestations, physical manifestations of these gods. And so they were like, are you, are you like a demigod? Like what's going on with you? And he just kept saying no. And they were said, well, what, like, what is going on? And he said, I'm awake. And they were like, Oh, okay. And then they kept walking. Like they didn't get it. Right. So he was like, Oh shit, that, that didn't work. <laughs> they didn't get it. You know, 
So that's when he formulated the Four Noble Truths. He was like, I have to find a prescription. I have to find a, a way of talking about this that can be perceived. Um, so, so he gets to his friends and he basically, the way it's described, okay, so the way it's described is um, one of his first disciples, his name, his name was, was Sariputta, and Sariputta uh, described the Four Noble Truths like this. He, he said, just as all, every animal on the planet's footprint can fit into the footprint of the elephant, so true, so true, or so too, all the teachings of the Dharma can fit in the, in the Four Noble Truths, which I think is a pretty great description. And um, I think of it as Russian dolls. You know, you have those Russian dolls and there's like one and it's kind of big, but then you open it and then there's two and then they're like the same. And then you open those and there's three and you open those and then there's four and they get smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's kind of the way I view the Dharma on a wide is like Russian dolls. But I like this idea of the elephant foot. So in his first teaching, he gave the most concise teaching. Y'all probably heard it before, maybe 50 times. The first noble truth. There is suffering in this world. There is suffering. The second noble truth. There's a cause to that suffering. What is that cause? The third noble truth. There is an, a coming to an end of suffering. It's possible. The fourth noble truth. Here's the path to the end. Here's the prescription. Here's the path to the end of suffering. This is what you need to do. This is all you need to do. These eight things. Do these eight things, and you too can find the freedom from suffering. So uh, my friend gave a, a, a pretty good description. His name is Pascal. He's a teacher through, he's actually, he's in Quebec. Um, good dude, super funny. So he kind of gave a, broke, a, a breakdown of this. The first noble truth. There's something not quite right here. So our own, like just the recognition of there's something not quite right here. So what the Buddha described this first noble truth is there is suffering in this world. And they gave this list, you know, old age is suffering, birth is suffering, you know, grief is suffering. There's all these different kind of aspects of suffering. Dissatisfaction. The word dukkha means dissatisfaction. So basically there is a dissatisfaction with the way things are. And that's the part of the cause of suffering. So I identify in that. The second noble truth, there's the cause. What's the cause? What, uh, what Pascal, Pascal says is in the second noble truth, why? Why, is, why? why are things not quite right? Selfish, self-centered craving, otherwise known as tanha which I'll break down a little bit more next week. Tanha, the direct translation of tanha means the unquenchable thirst. The unquenchable thirst um, or never quite enough, never quite good enough, never quite satisfied enough, 
It's just not enough. The cause of suffering, mostly having to do with selfish, self-centered craving. So the third noble truth, there must be another way. There must be another way. Because this whole kind of, there's something not quite right here, dissatisfaction, selfish, self-centered craving isn't really working out. So there must be another way. And then the, uh, the fourth noble truth is a different way. This is a different way. Another way that I like to describe it and the way it's been commonly described, seeing the Buddha as the first psychiatrist, the first uh, doctor, the first psychoanalyst, right? Thinking about the Buddha in a, in a, a more of a medical way, more of a, uh, um, what, what, because really what was he trying to do, which was help free our minds from the causes of suffering. In my mental health field, that's what I try to do with every person I work with, right? That's what I've been trying to do with myself. That's what hopefully doctors try to do. Hopefully psychiatrists are trying to do. Uh, First noble truth, diagnosis. No, wait, First first noble truth, ailment ailment they're suffering second noble truth diagnosis the cause of suffering is mostly in here third noble truth the prognosis prognosis is pretty good actually if you have less dust in your eyes you're sitting in this room you're on zoom you're learning to meditate you're following precepts you're on the way good for you prognosis is good We can free ourselves from suffering. The fourth noble truth, the prescription. What is the prescription? I mean, I'm not going to get into all of it, but there's there's basically uh, uh, sila, right? Sila is the kind of right actions, um, the ways of not causing more harm or suffering for ourselves and learning how to, and this is, I think, a hard one, not spill out our suffering onto everyone else. Have you ever noticed, you ever, you ever had someone spill their suffering onto you? Like, whoops, sorry, I just dumped all over you, right? Spilling their suffering out or, you know, that happens, I think, when people drive or when people get angry and then they just spill their suffering out on somebody. A parent will spill their suffering out on their kids. This happens. A relationship happens. So sila helps us to either contain our suffering so we can actually deal with it and not just try to distract or spill it out all over the place. So then there's samadhi, which is this meditative, concentrated kind of awareness that we're developing, like the all the meditations. One of the uh, words in Pali for uh, meditation is bhavana. And bhavana means like technique, like meditative technique. And there's a whole group of bhavana, right? And so uh, uh, that's the different, that's, you know, the sound meditation, the body meditation, the loving kindness, compassion, concentration, 
you know, um, all of it, heart practices, all the, all the different things. And then panya. Panya means wisdom. Right? So through not spilling out our suffering and addressing our own suffering, right? And then developing a mind that is uh, less attached, then we are um, giving rise to the wisdom that's within us, basically. The wisdom of the Dharma is what the Buddha described. And so I'm not going to break all of the eightfold path down tonight, but I will look at the second noble truth. I'll go through the four noble truths uh, for the next few weeks. And so, yeah. So, I'll, so next week I'll talk, I'll talk about selfish and self-centered craving or the cause of suffering. So if you want to come check it out, please do. Okay, uh, questions. We've got a few minutes for a couple questions, reflections. Anything people didn't understand? I mean, other than the whole kind of Mara and like, you know, I don't know if it's true or not true. I wasn't there. Clear thoughts, questions, reflections. I think you guys didn't understand. Please. Uh, what was the whole uh, touching the ground? Yeah. So thank you for saying that because I, I, I kind of skipped that part. So the 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 whole the, in the Thai, um, in the Thai version, the the Buddha, or as he's being shaken by doubt, touches the ground. And that is when the goddess comes up and says, no, he's worthy. So that's the piece. I, I forgot about that piece. Yeah. So the earth touching gesture, right, is often, um, I don't think it's this one. No. Earth touching gesture is often, yeah, the, where the Buddha has his kind of hand down touching the earth like that. And in the Thai uh, cosmology, that's where the, um, the earth goddess comes and washes all of the doubt away, basically. Yeah. Thanks for asking that. Yeah, I, I, that was maybe a vital piece I, I skipped. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sometimes um, just cool stories, right? But they, they have meaning to me. What I like about like, whether you believe in cosmology or not, or you believe in this, you know, that Mara exists. Definitely. I think we can all agree Mara exists in the mind. There are uh, personifications. There are uh, uh, mental fabrications of our, every one of our minds that embody greed, hatred, delusion, right? And it's particularly in the five uh, hindrances. So I'd like to look at it that way. And what, what meditation is helping us to do ultimately is to eliminate the five hindrances, which then in turn eliminates the three, what are called the three poisons, which, uh, which are greed, hatred, and delusion. Yeah. 
So um, it, oftentimes what we say here is like, med- there's like some, there's like posters and t-shirts that say meditate and destroy, which, you know, Noah stole from skate and destroy because we grew up in a skate surf town in Santa Cruz in the eighties. Right. So from the, the kind of, I think it was bones brigade, like uh, skate and destroy, we got meditate and destroy because the reality is we are trying to destroy greed, hatred, and delusion within our own hearts and minds, eradicating it, wipe it out. Why? To make room for loving kindness, compassion, wisdom. That's the deal. Okay. Anything else? Thanks for showing up, all y'all. Come back next week for the next episode. Of course, um, this center is run completely on the the donation of those who attend. Uh, We pay about $3,500 a month um, to have this space. And there are there is a bowl for those of you who are here and have cash. Uh, it's a fifteen dollars suggested donation. Also, there's a Venmo. You can Venmo just below, and um, you can also become a monthly subscriber or a monthly don't uh, donor to go to againstthestream.com and just kind of that actually really helps us because then we don't have to like try to figure it out. We just know how much monthly we're going to be having as income to pay the bills. And then those of you online, you can uh, just click on the link to against the stream donation. And, you know, of course, um, we're not, we don't charge money, right? We're not like, you know, 25 bucks at the door or whatever, right? There's not a door fee uh, because that's, that, that doesn't, that doesn't align with our, our practice, you know, um, we, we live and we, we, this will only, this place will only continue to, to exist as long as people are generous. If people aren't generous, it'll disappear. So that it's, it's up to everyone who attends. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time and attention. And also to know that we give, we, do, we donate, right? All of the, we give all of the goodness of this practice, all of the goodness, um, yeah, of our practice and our intention to all beings. We dedicate to all beings everywhere. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken to their true nature. May we all be free. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.